Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the drscore.com doctor rating website. On this show, we usually talk about things to do to get better healthcare. Today, we're going to talk about the other side, about things not to do. Um, you don't want to take every test. Um, you might seem like, well, more tests are better, but more tests can sometimes cause problems. More tests, you might find spurious values that you got to do more tests, more invasive things to follow up on. And especially at the end of life, you don't always want to be put on a ventilator if there's no hope of recovery. Um, on today's show, we're going to talk about um, that aspect of healthcare that represents dying well. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Rapport. He's a clinical professor of neurological surgery at the University of Washington. Uh, Dr. Rapport has been an active neurosurgeon. He's been a visiting professor of neurosurgery at the University of Malaya School of Medicine and the University of Hue School of Medicine in Vietnam. He's been involved in issues of social justice. Uh, he's written rather widely. He's published two books of nonfiction. One, Physician, The Life of Paul Beeson, published in 2001, and Nerve Endings, The Discovery of the Synapse, published in 2005. He's written many scientific publications, given numerous invited lectures, and he's the author of To Die of Having Lived, an article that was recently published in the American Scholar magazine. Dr. Report, thank you for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. I, um, I recently read your article um, that was published in, um, I believe it's American Scholar, the, the magazine of uh, the Phi Beta Kappa organization. It's called To Die of Having Lived. I think that's a wonderful title. Well, I wish I could uh, claim that I thought it up. Uh, it's a line from Willa Cather's Death Comes for the Archbishop, um, or at least a paraphrase of that. So she she thought of it first. Well, very good. Well, you've ap uh, applied it well and um, have um, really developed uh, some beautiful thinking on this. I understand that you were, I don't want to say a retired neurosurgeon, um, semi-retired? Neurosurgeon? I'm hardly retired. Uh, I'm not operating anymore, but I uh, am on the full-time faculty at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and I attend in a big trauma hospital here uh, and in the neurocritical care unit still. Well, when people talk about something that's complicated, um, they talk about it either being rocket science or brain surgery. 
And um, so you have been in what would arguably be considered a very um, technical field where there's where it's basically one modern miracle after another. And um, I'm, I'm totally impressed with our modern medicine and our medical system and, and the amazing things that we're able to do for folks. Well, well, I am too, uh, and often they're important and extremely valuable and, and uh, save people from hardships that they wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to dodge. But um, they're not always appropriate, and sometimes they get uh, applied in situations which are inappropriate. Uh, the thrust of what I was writing about has to do mostly with that. Well, I'll tell you what, but let, let, before we talk too much about um, that, that the, 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 I don't want to call it the glass is half empty side because that really doesn't do it justice. But before we launch into that, let's just talk about the good side of, of, of the medical care that we have. Um, the, the modern hospital with its modern OR you know, people hear about the risks and, 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 and the safety of problems. But on the other hand, um, there's all those people who do exceptionally well, people with things that years ago they would not have survived that we're able to make a difference for. Yeah, and not very many years ago. I mean, I, I uh, uh, <coughs> visited uh, Oxford, the Radcliffe Infirmary, for another reason not too many years ago, and I actually shook hands with the man who, as a house officer, gave the first dose ever delivered of penicillin. Wow. Uh, that was in 1941, I think. So, uh, you know, now I, God knows how many antibiotics there are, but uh, just in a very brief period of time, in that simple realm, we've come a long way. In the field of neurosurgery, of course, uh, Harvey Cushing was basically operating with tools he borrowed from orthopedists, and now we're able to put catheters into tertiary intracerebral arteries and uh, put stents and coils and uh, all kinds of things into them. So, uh, yeah, the things have changed a lot, and sometimes it's enormously appropriate to use that technology. I I imagine that some of the the neurosurgical treatment of epilepsy must be there must be some extraordinary technology involved there. Right. Uh, Wilder Penfield invented uh, surgery for epilepsy. Uh, it turns out that the University of Washington, uh, because of a man named George Ogeman, uh, and now his son Jeffrey Ogeman, is a great center for that. Uh, uh, Penfield was able to map the brain, uh, discovering where uh, in human brain language and motor sensory functions are uh, deposited uh, as uh, and was able to design operations for curing epilepsy, and now we do that in a very sophisticated way with subdural electrodes for recording and so on. Well, so um, I guess for some of our lay listeners, epilepsy would be a condition with electrical abnormalities in the brain, um, synchronization of, of, of nerves, and um, you're able to detect the focus that causes the um, these abnormal electrical impulses and, and actually surgically treat that area. Is, is, is that right? That's amazing. It is. And, and with a very high degree of success, uh, most big series, you know, 70 or 80 percent of people are cured, depending on how you define cure. But uh, if 
pick people correctly, we can make big differences in their lives. I, I once operated on a young woman who couldn't be in a room alone with a man, had seizures all the time, was very withdrawn, and uh, a few years later she got married, got a job, had babies, and had a normal life. Well, even for... Um I understand for brain cancer, I, I hear about these radiologic techniques that are, you know, something straight out of Star Wars technology. Yeah, we're able to focus uh, irradiation now a variety of different ways, gamma knife and LINAC, ways of focusing beams of radiation so high doses can be delivered to very specific targets without involving the rest of the brain. And uh, that's made... A huge difference. There's new drugs, uh, chemotherapeutic agents, which are sometimes effective in the treatment of highly malignant neoplasms of the brain. So uh, on every front, neurosurgery, for example, uh, has become more technologically driven, more effective in the treatments of certain diseases, but on balance, less humanistically motivated. So... Let's move then from, from this intense positive area about medicine, all we're very excited about, to, uh, well, maybe the dark side isn't the, the best way to describe it, but how patients maybe shouldn't always try to take advantage of every last technology that we have to offer them. Yeah, it, it was and not too many years ago uh, true that, when people went to doctors, they knew that doctor. They had a relationship with them. Uh, their family doctor was a person that they knew and trusted. And uh, now most people people get their insurance through big systems, which are fine. Those are very efficient ways of delivering uh, primary through quaternary care um, treatments. But everybody's going to die. I mean, that's something that uh, certainly must be faced. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to come to the end of the road where treatments are no longer useful and actually in many situations counterproductive. For example, in the neurocritical care uh, unit where I attend, uh, we get patients who are very badly hurt uh, either by trauma or subarachnoid hemorrhage from aneurysms, for example. and, and uh, Really, they are patients who died at the scene, and because of very efficient uh, uh, Medic One in Seattle and other big cities, they, they wind up being intubated in the field, transferred to our emergency room, and, and put on ventilators. So now we have a person who is basically dead on a ventilator and uh, with a heartbeat. It's very, very difficult for families to sort that out, uh, and, of course, they don't want the person they love to die. So so then we're kind of in a pickle. I, I get the sense from reading um, this most recent work of yours that our technologies have been designed to help give people a better life. They have not been designed to help give people a better death. And uh, you, there was a one, of, the, one of, the, of many quotes in there in your article that I really liked is that dodging a bad death has become more complicated. And that's true for the reasons we've been talking about. We can uh, intubate people. We can give people tracheotomies. We can keep them on ventilators. Uh, we can keep their heart 
feeding with a variety of drugs. We can control their vital signs. Um, but sometimes that's simply not enough. And when people have head injuries, for example, or uh, widely metastatic disease or metabolic problems, which are s simply, in the end, going to kill them, uh, I, uh, I wonder sometimes about the wisdom of delaying that. It's it's true that it does use up resources, and that's a minor problem, although um, for the nearly 50 million people in the United States who aren't insured and who may not be insured if the Republicans keep at it, uh, we use up resources that might be better spent in other ways, for example, uh, keeping people off the street who have AIDS and TB is probably a good way to control those diseases from being spread through the general population. That's a pretty good use of the healthcare dollar, whereas continuing to treat somebody who's 85 years old and who has a 90% mortality likelihood from, a chronic, from an acute subdural hematoma, a clot in the brain, that probably isn't so wise. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Fellman. We're talking today with neurosurgeon Dr. Richard Rapport, who's on the faculty at the University of Washington. He's the author of To Die of Having Lived. Uh, his article describes how it has become more difficult to have a good death. Um, yes, the... Uh, the politics of this have, have gotten interesting, and, and um, with health care reform, people were talking about the government taking over and putting grandma to death. I have the sense, and again, in, at least in part from, from reading your work, that the government is already involved in a lot of the decisions that get made um, regarding the, the care of people who are near, near death's door. Well, that's an understatement. Is it? I'm, I'm uh, 67 years old, and and so I have Medicare now. I've never had better insurance, and uh, I've been a doctor for 40 years. So that's state-sponsored health care, as is the medicine for people in the military, as is the VA. There's lots of uh, government-sponsored health care, and, and personally I don't see anything the matter with that. Um, it's probably going to turn out to be far more efficient uh, to develop some sort of system that bypasses insurance companies who, after all, are principally charged by their uh, stockholders with making a profit. Uh, the profit motive isn't bad, but it does rob the healthcare delivery systems of money that could be put to use directly taking care of sick people. Um, the bigger problem is the nature of the debate. I mean, to uh, say that Mr. Obama, whatever that means, I mean, there's a lot more involved here than Mr. Obama, but the new plans are going to kill grandma is absurd. Uh, doctors and other healthcare workers have to make decisions all the time about how to treat people or how not to treat them, what to use, what not to use. And again, my 40 years experience is that Doctors in general take that responsibility enormously seriously, and when people are approaching the end of their life and there isn't really very much to do, it is reasonable for doctors and families together to try to make a decision to 
change the focus of care and rather than trying to cure somebody who's not going to be cured, try to help them to be comfortable and to die without making a mess. Uh, that that can be very complicated. Yeah. Is, is government already involved in that with regulations or issues that affect how the, how patients are cared for? No, no. not directly. Okay. Not, not in my life, they aren't. Okay. Very, I, I may have misinterpreted uh, something that you had written about that. Um, oh, well, I mean, there, there are certainly rules and regulations that govern how hospitals operate, uh, um, you know, infection control, uh, what kind of people can be allowed in certain places, uh, what sorts of uh, <clears throat> uh, guidelines there are for the treatment of certain diseases. There are NIH consensus statements, for example, about how to uh, treat diseases. So there are, are suggestions, there are rational uh, people who are making rational decisions for the best uh, ways to treat people. Um, but the real problem uh, within hospitals has to do mostly uh, with uh, lawyers. Yeah. Uh, Here's what you wrote. Even if the doctors, nurses, and staff caring for him are intelligent, properly educated, humanistically motivated, and correct in the diagnosis, they are manipulated not only by the tyranny of technology but also by the rules established in their hospital. In addition, regulations of local and state licensing agencies and the federal government dictate the parameters of what the hospital workers do and how they do it, and every action taken is heavily influenced by legal experts committed to their clients' best interests, values frequently different from the patient's. Yes, and I think those are all true statements. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are all kinds of regulations and oversights in all hospitals, and they have to do with every jurisdiction. And some of those are quite reasonable, and some of those I think that you and I and other people who work in hospitals would question. But but mostly uh, you have to be careful um, because of guidelines established by attorneys uh, those guidelines are often uh, more responsive to uh, the clients of the attorneys who are not necessarily the patients. Mm -hmm. and, and the doctors um, who obviously take their role with patients very, very seriously and try to be involved with the family in decision-making, they tend to err on the side of doing more rather than doing less. Um, and And... I just wonder if that's even especially true of the oncologists. I won't ask you to, to, to say, but because what we should do is have an oncologist on the show sometime, but I, I get the sense that at least in some situations they're going to fight that cancer until there's nothing left of the patient. Uh, there's certainly people who do that, and, and uh, you know, I suppose it depends on your view of the world. Uh, my view of the world at the age of 67 is a lot different uh, than it was 40 years ago when I graduated from medical school. Um, <clears throat> I think, uh, as I wrote, there's a time to uh, fight as hard as you can against any kind of disease, and certainly we have experience with childhood cancers, and particularly leukemias and lymphomas, which are now much more profitably treated than they were <clears throat> long ago. Uh, there are tumors which are very responsive to certain kinds of chemotherapy, but 
the big tumor in the neurosurgical world, glioblastoma, isn't one of them. If you have a glioblastoma, you will die of that disease, and uh, the date of your death is only going to be delayed. You're not going to be cured of that illness if you're older than 14 or 15 uh, years of age. Uh, older people who get that sort of a, t- a tumor are going to die, and, and my practice uh, was to treat them as long as I could so that they had a good quality of, quality of life, and, and when they got to the end of that, to help them uh, to withdraw therapy and to die as peacefully as possible. I um, came to medicine uh, from a test tube research background, and I pr- probably say that since starting medical school, I probably haven't read more than three works of fiction um, in, in the uh, whatever that is, 30-something years. So um, your view, however, is probably a much more humanistically informed uh, view of these issues, and... Um, I thought you might speak to that and your thoughts on the role of humanism and, and literature in, um, in, in, in the way you view these decisions. Well, <laughs> um, I, I read a lot, and I read across uh, all kinds of uh, genre. I'm fond of reading history. Um, I, there are wonderful writers who address these kinds of issues these days, and and for my money, the best doctor uh, writing uh, in 2010 is Sherwin Newland. Uh, he has written extensively his book, How We Die, I think is about as good as it gets, uh, describing the mechanisms uh, by which people do come to the end of their lives. Um, he He's uh, excellent, but I think... Uh, uh, other kinds of writers uh, of fiction and poetry, not necessarily nonfiction, have been addressing this uh, these topics forever. Um, I, I I would argue that, for example, <clears throat> Tolstoy had a lot more to say about human behavior uh, that's relevant in this century than than Freud did. Um, current writers that I admire uh, who uh, write about things like this are, for example, Wendell Berry, um, uh, who writes both nonfiction and poetry uh, as as well as novels, and Denise Levertov, the uh, wonderful poet who died about a dozen years ago. Yes, I understand you're particularly tied into this literary realm um, uh, through your wife, the novelist Valerie Trueblood. Yeah, uh, Valerie is a much better writer than I am. Uh, she, uh, her uh, stories and uh, her last uh, novel, <clears throat> Seven Loves, have uh, brought us into contact with lots of wonderful writers, uh, including Denise Levertov, who we both knew well. And uh, if your listeners want to uh, be uh, treated to one of the century's great poets. They could read one of Denise's 30 or 40 books. But uh, again, I, I think novelists from uh, uh, the last century have have a lot to say about how we end our lives um, 
Yeah, there's plenty to read on this subject besides me. Sure. Well, you're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Dr. F- uh, with, with physician Dr. Richard Rapport. Um, last week on the show, we, we spoke to um, a spokesperson for the Red Cross, and, and one of the things that, that she loves about her job is the fact that she makes a difference in people's lives. And I'm always impressed that, you know, the people who are in the healthcare system, that's what they do. You know, they make a difference in people's lives. And on top of that, um, they often, many physicians often are involved in activities um, beyond their day-to-day um, uh, work in, in, the, in the area of social justice. Um, th- that is something that you, you've taken a lot of pride in as well. Uh, in 1980, I was uh, one of the founders of uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility in Seattle, a group that <clears throat> took a dim view of nuclear proliferation. I still take a dim view of that. Uh, even Mr. Obama, who I deeply admire, uh, his plan to expand nuclear power plants, I think, is ill-advised. Uh, not that coal and other carbon-based uh, ways of producing power are uh, a great idea, but the problem with uh, nuclear power is uh, what to do with the plutonium, which uh, is a necessary byproduct of uh, making energy uh, with uh, nuclear materials. The half-life of plutonium is still 25,000 years. Uh, That's a basic law of physics. There's no way to get around it. A half-life of 25,000 years means it's dangerous for 125,000 years. Uh, Human history, of course, is about six or 8,000 years recorded history. Uh, It strikes me that that's sort of a Faustian bargain. Uh, We don't have plans for the disposal of the nuclear waste, and until we have uh, plans which are safe, Plutonium is an intense carcinogen, and it's going to kill a lot of people. Hmm. One of the other issues we've spoken about on the show are physicians who, towards the end of their career, not that I'm suggesting you're towards the end of yours, um, put their their skills to good use in in, in more voluntary efforts or or other other things that they do. Uh, there's lots of opportunity for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, when I retired from the operating room, I, I had the opportunity to spend a lot more time uh, in the neurocritical care unit, which I, I enjoy doing with residents, with mid-level practitioners and medical students. Uh, I think you do see the world a lot differently uh, from the end of your career rather than the career building stage. Uh, I really enjoy spending uh, lots of time talking to families and talking to patients and trying to advise them how to make their way through what is very a, technolog- uh, a technically rich environment uh, these days. Uh, as we touched on in the beginning, it's not always a good idea uh, to throw more technology at a problem uh, when the payoff is going to be slight. Nowhere is that more true than uh, in the intensive care unit, as I wrote about, when people wind up nearly certain to die. And the longer uh, the treatment goes on, 
the more futile becomes the outcome and the uglier gets the death. So my advice to people, for what it's worth, is uh, death is something to think about. It's not necessarily a pleasant thing to think about, uh, but also, as I wrote, there are entire corporations now dedicated to helping you plan your retirement. And uh, the first thing they advise is start thinking about it early. If you don't do that, then the decisions are going to be left to somebody else. And the somebody else might love you very much and not want to see you die and and continue to foster the idea that more treatment is a good idea long past the time when uh, the pull date is passed. And, and I think that's worth thinking about when you can. Uh, one way you can influence that, uh, of course, is with advanced directives, but advanced directives alone are not enough. Um, there has to be unanimity of agreement amongst the people that you love so that uh, you don't wind up in an ICU with everybody saying, yeah, he's probably not going to die and maybe we shouldn't do a tracheostomy and plug him into a ventilator for uh, the rest of uh, what are going to be a very short number of days. And if that's obstructed by one person, uh, then doctors are at a severe quandary as to what to do. So everybody has to agree. The advanced directives have to be in the chart. Doctors have to know they're there. And family members have to be around and in agreement about what to do. Uh, this has much more to do, by the way, with my undergraduate liberal arts college education than it does with anything I learned in medical school. I have a, a strong sense that this is this is the kind of specific advice we love to give uh, uh, our, our listeners advice on on how to have better health care. Um, and here we're talking about how to, uh, in a sense, avoid um, health care that you really don't want. Um, and, and so just to reiterate what you say, plan ahead. And also make sure that you have a family that has already come to agreement and there's some uh, a unanimous sense because, as you, as you wrote, you know, one, one outlier can really throw things. Yeah, that makes it very difficult. Uh, my wife and I are older now. We have one son uh, and uh, a bunch of siblings, and we've all been very clear uh, in our own advanced directives this, this is how I want to be treated. Of course, everybody uh, hopes to get better. That, that's human nature. And uh, there, there's lots of advertising these days by uh, big pharma and even hospitals and, and medical centers that no matter what's the matter with you, uh, we can make you better. I regret to tell your listeners that's not always the case. And they shouldn't be sold that idea without some very critical thinking. You know, I, I think some people can look at what you're writing about and have a pessimistic outlook on this. I, I read the title of your work, To Die of Having Lived. I understand that we need to do some planning up front and have the family involved. But I get the sense that what's really, really the, the major uh, message here, in addition to that very good practical advice, is enjoy your life. You know, live it. Um, do good for others. That, that, I think, is the, the, real, the real message I'm hearing here beyond what you need to make sure to do to avoid a bad death. Yeah. 
I mean, I always tell my department chairman that my goal uh, now for uh, the rest of my career is to leave the world a little bit uh, better off than I found it and to die without any enemies. Um, <clears throat> those are uh, <laughs> sometimes challenging. You're mutually uh, exclusive at times, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, the doctor business has always been tied up uh, with death. Uh, sometimes we fail, and when we fail, uh, we ought to fail uh, with patients' best interest at heart, not our own uh, doctor's particularly surgeons, by the way, don't, don't like to have their failures exposed. We, when we operate on somebody, we expect to make them better, and when they don't get better, it's very hard for surgeons to let go of that. I think that knowing when to let go of it is enormously important. Helping patients to die is enormously important. Uh, that's part of our responsibility. Having said all of that, you know, I still run uh, 10 or 12 miles a week. I'm still pretty vigorous. Uh, I'm happy with my life. I want to be as healthy as I can. And when it comes time for me to die, I want to do it without making a mess for anybody else. Very good. You know, we can end on that point, but I I thought perhaps you have some other specific suggestions for our listeners before they go. You know, when I I think of your work – Attending on a trauma service, I, you know, one of my, my one of my first questions would be, well, does he have any thoughts about motorcycles, helmets, seatbelts, things like that? Yeah, one of the other points I I made in this particular essay is that uh, we are going to die of having lived again. To quote Willa Cather, uh, "In death comes for the Archbishop, but we also shall die as we have lived." Uh, my, I, I have 60 or 70 patients on my inpatient neurosurgical service here at Harborview. We take magnificent care of them. A lot of them are young people uh, who believed they were immortal and uh, did very foolish things. Uh, car surfing is at the top of the list, uh, getting drunk and driving on a skateboard somewhere, uh, texting while uh, trying to operate your automobile, all of these things are probably not uh, great ideas, and it's hard to get young people's attention often and uh, to make them see that. Uh, young males particularly are at great risk, and uh, I'm not sure how we solve that problem. In addition to that, though, there are things which you know very well and which most people who are thinking about it understand can be treated. Diabetes can be treated. Hypertension can be treated. Some kinds of cancer can be very effectively treated. Um, uh, Spending your life eating bad food, smoking cigarettes, not exercising, all of these things are going to cause you problems in the end, and you shouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I have teenage boys, and, uh, you know, I tell them if you feel like doing something where you're about to say to your buddies, hey, guys, watch this. Don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, and I I wish I could uh, get uh, all the eighth-grade kids in Seattle to come through the ICU and what life is like in a halo after you've broken your neck trying Mm -hmm. to skateboard drunk. Uh, I'm not sure you or I are going to be able to solve that problem. But the end-of-life issues for older people, I think, can be rationally addressed, and they should be, and uh, I've hope I've been a little bit helpful in uh, giving your listeners some direction as to how to do that. Uh, Dr. Dr. Rapport, I feel like um, the medical profession, 
uh, your patients, uh, the greater public, and certainly our listeners and I are very fortunate uh, to have you around. Thank you so much. I appreciate talking to you, Steve. Having lived a life of medicine, Dr. Rapport had a lot to cover, from the foundations of health and youth all the way to having a good death. I want to reiterate some of the things that we covered. First, modern medicine is miraculous in some ways. Some of the medicines we have, um, well, he mentioned antibiotics, curing things. Most things we don't cure, but still, not only do we lengthen life, we have medicines that dramatically improve the quality of patients' lives. There's so much we can do. Patients, people, if they have a problem, should see their doctor early and get the treatment they need. Overwhelmingly, it's good news, but there are some issues. Uh, Dr. Rapport, certainly concerned about all the uninsured, as am I. Um, hopefully, as we take steps, we've taken one, uh, but I'm sure there will be others. We'll have uh, a better and better system of caring for uh, people in the United States. But in addition to that, Dr. Rapport tells us that sometimes our modern miracles, our, our, our ability to care for the very seriously ill, gets put to poor use. And one of the things that he suggests, and I think is very good advice, is think about what kind of interventions you want when your time comes. And make sure your family uh, is, in an, is in agreement about it. You don't want there to be family stress and fights over ventilators um, at the end of life. There should be a good death. And um, as Dr. Rapport says, dodging a bad death has become more complicated than it used to be. Um, another point is to live. And uh, in his article, another great quote um, that he had in there was, um, and again, he's, he's a whole lot more literally oriented than I, but this is also from Willa Cather's Death Comes for the Archbishop. The quote, I shall not die of a cold, my son. I shall die of having lived. And um, living is important. Uh, Dr. Rapport has done that through his work, uh, through his interest in humanism, uh, through literature, through his work in social justice. Uh, we've talked about volunteerism many times on this show, and I encourage you to participate. Um, it, it's good to help others. It makes you feel good. It's probably good for your health uh, to have those kinds of feelings. Uh, this harkens back to uh, our visit with Dr. Kemper talking about integrative medicine and the foundation of good health. And um, sure, Diet and exercise is important, but having friends, having a life that's, um, that, that's special is, contributes to health. And uh, Dr. Rapport would add to that um, avoiding alcohol, avoiding traumatic injuries. You know, one of the themes of this show is how different people have different perspectives. Consider Dr. Rapport's perspective from his Compartment of the, the healthcare system. Here Remember he is to to supervising to get and a, give a board your that takes care of people with serious brain, neck injuries, spinal cord injuries, and to healthcare empowerment. He sees the, all these young people who, the example he gave, uh, riding a skateboard drunk and had a serious injury. 
um, engaging in, in motor, um, motorized vehicle activities that put, put these young people in harm's way. Um, these are things to avoid um, while still living a, a very good life. But from his perspective, of course, this is, this is something primary that you need to, 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 to avoid, that you, you may need to make sure that your, your teenage, especially teenage boys, uh, uh, consider. Well, there was so much else we could have covered. Uh, some things we did, his, his take on insurance, and um, I'm sure the people in the insurance company have a different perspective than Dr. Rapport does. He's concerned about the money they take out of the system. I'm sure they feel from their compartment that they devote their lives to improving, to, to helping people get access to medical care. And uh, I'm sure that for the most part, that's the truth. I know that each and every listener on this show has a story, either personal or a friend, where the insurance company seemed to have done something that was inappropriate. But I'll tell you, most of the time they're paying the bills, and I'm sure they feel like they're on the patient's side. That's our show for this week. I hope you'll join us next week on Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. The theme music of Getting Better Healthcare is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until we meet next time, I wish you a great and healthy week.